0: Happy Mother's Day. It's not fair. Jim gets the mic first. So he gets to like do a big Happy Mother's Day to his wife personally. And, you know, all the rest of you guys are out there going, hey, what am I? That's not fair. Jim got to pull that off. My wife's upstairs with the kids. So I didn't get that opportunity either, but I woke her up with a happy mother's day this morning. That's not true. She was awake making my coffee and I walked in and told her happy mother's day. That's a, I, I don't want to start the message with a lie because I feel like the rest of it would just go downhill from there. So let's be honest. She was up like probably 30 minutes ahead of me with the kids, had the two year old up, had the dog outside. I wake up, find my way in there bleary eyed and she's standing at the coffee pot making sure I got coffee. So happy mother's day, Trina. She can't hear me, but y'all can tell her later what a great husband I am. All right. I don't know why that was funny. So you don't laugh at my jokes sometimes, and then I say something that's not even a joke, and y'all crack up. I don't understand. All right. Seriously, welcome back to chapter 5 of our five-chapter installment, According to Jim a study of the book of James. Now Jim and I had a joke we were actually going to try to pull off this morning and we decided at the last minute we're not as funny as we think we are so we didn't do it but we were going to have Jim start the message and I was going to be like tied up in the back and they were going to have a camera on me and you know it's like because it's according to Jim and Anyway, we didn't think that was that funny, and I can see now that it wasn't. So, see, y'all didn't laugh at that. You laugh at my husband-ability, but you don't laugh at the... Anyway, so here we are after four weeks of studying what James, the half-brother of Jesus, thought was important enough to write down for all time for the church that bears Jesus' name. Pretty important stuff. I thought it was well worth our investment. I hope you have found as much value... In this teaching from James as I have. It's been transformative in my life. It has helped me make some changes. I've seen some areas of weakness in my faith that I needed to shore up. I've seen some areas uh, where I needed to begin to live a little differently, uh, speak a little differently after chapter 2. Boy, that got my attention. I think that was two. But anyway, it's been a really good series for me. And I found that the teacher always learns more than the student, so I don't try to judge whether or not you guys have learned a lot by what I've learned, but I hope for you it has been as good, uh, as informative, as transformative as it has been for me. Before we dive into chapter 5 of James, though, I think it is worthwhile to do a little bit of a a rewind, to pause for a moment, jump back to chapter 1, and let's recap the main points of what James has to say to the church. Chapter 1 of James, we found that he says that when you and I experience trials and difficulties and challenges in life, that we should consider it pure joy. I want to punch James in the eye. What? uh, Pure joy? When I'm going through tough times, you think I should consider it pure joy. When I first read that, I'm like, you're crazy. You drank the Kool-Aid. You're off the reservation. But when I really look into what James is saying, I get behind the why, get past the statement, get under the statement, and really see what he's talking about and why I should consider it pure joy, it begins to make sense. James teaches that from those trials and those challenges in life, we are grown, we are improved. God uses the trials of your life and mine to refine our faith and to define us in the context of Christ. To define us as followers of Jesus. So we can consider it pure joy then when we face those trials of many kinds, when we look past the trial and understand that God is at work in us in the midst of that trial. I think that's a a great teaching and something I needed to hear from James. Heard it before several times, heard it preached, heard it talked about, read it, made notes about it, and still needed to hear it again. James also taught us in chapter 1 that we've got to do more than listen to the Word of God. You have to do more than listen when I talk up here. okay? When I am preaching, teaching, uh, uh, trying to rightly divide the Word of God, trying to share with you what God is saying in His Word and in my life, trying to share that with you, you need to do more than just listen, more than just hear. We've got to do something with that information. When God shares information, it's not just so you can uh, uh, be informed. As I mentioned a minute ago, it's so you can be transformed. God doesn't just want you to, to grow fat on spiritual knowledge. He wants you to exercise those spiritual muscles as He pours that, the fuel into you. We've got to be listeners first, but then we have to be doers of God's Word. That was, that was chapter 1. Chapter 2, James carries that theme a little bit forward. He says that our faith, if we have no deeds... Our faith, if we don't do something with it, is dead. Faith without works, faith without deeds, James says, is dead. That's a powerful statement. Like, you mean if I say I'm a Christ follower, but there's not any evidence? Like, if I couldn't be convicted in a court of law of being a, a follower of Jesus, that maybe I ought to check my statements About my faith? Yeah, that's what James is saying. He says, my faith, if I claim to be a follower of Christ, but I am not doing anything with the gift that God has given me, the gift of salvation, the gift of freedom, the gift of information, if I'm not letting those things transform, the Holy Spirit transform my life, then my faith is worthless, it's dead, and I probably ought to check my spiritual pulse and make sure I really am who and what I say I am. We got to do something with our faith. Following Jesus is not a get out of hell free card. Let me say it again. Being a Christian is not a get out of hell free card. Now, maybe you're like me. I came to faith as fire insurance, right? I wanted to make sure I didn't burn in hell. Bottom line, it's plain and simple. Somebody preached the gospel in a real, plain, simple way. There's two eternal destinations. One's heaven, one's hell. Pick yours. I said, I think I'll sign up for the heaven thing. And I used that wrong motivation to get to a right decision. And God has grown me a ton since then. But in the beginning, my faith was without works and was kind of dead. But God has grown me and my faith has become a catalyst for life change. My life has changed a ton since that day that I prayed that prayer to ask Jesus into my heart. And so James says we have to do that. We got to be more than hearers, we have to be doers of God's word. Chapter three this was the one that punched me in the gut the most. Our words have weight. This is the most powerful muscle in your body. It is very difficult to control. I got a pretty good grip on it right now, but I have no control. That's not true. I have some control. But James says the, the the tongue, the power of our words are potent. And we need to, to let our words be filtered through Christ, filtered through our faith. We've got to work to gain control of the words that come out of our mouth because, James says, our words have power. He likens them to a spark and then he says, consider the small spark that can set an entire forest ablaze so it is with your tongue. My tongue has the power to burn people down. I can say things to people that will destroy them. I can also say things to people that will build them up. I can say things to you today that would make you sore, that would build your faith, that could be transformative in your life. And I have to choose daily, moment by moment many times, which words I'm going to let come out of my mouth. And the best way to choose the building, life-giving words is to filter them through a heart filled with Christ. Because out of my heart, my thinking will change. And when my heart and my thinking, my heart and my head have changed and become aligned with God, then the words that come out of my mouth will more often reflect God. They will more often build than burn. James challenged me in that. I've got to check out the words that come out of my mouth. They have power and potency. He also talked in chapter 3 about two kinds of wisdom, worldly wisdom and biblical wisdom. One leads to death, turmoil, destruction, all kinds of bad stuff. One leads to life, eternal life. I'll let you figure out which one is which. We can each subscribe to one of those two ways of wisdom. The the one with air quotes around it, worldly wisdom, or the biblical wisdom, the leadership and guidance of God. We can follow culture. But you got to think about where it's going to take you. See, I learned a long time ago. I say I learned it. Let me say it this way. I was taught a long time ago, and I am continuing to learn the truth of this statement. You have to begin with the end in mind. When I was a Boy Scout, they taught us to use a compass and a map, called it orienteering. And they did it like this. They like, dropped us in the woods in a place we didn't know with a compass and a map and a Boy Scout handbook that taught you how to use it. And they said, here on the map is where you want to be. Bye. And they left a bunch of 11- to 16-year-old boys in the woods with compasses and maps and a big question mark hanging over our heads. And we had to learn how to get from A to B. We had to begin with our end destination in mind and choose the route that would take us there. Such is our lives. You've got to begin with the end in mind. Decide where it is you want to be going and choose the path of wisdom that will take you to that destination. Good stuff James is sharing. Chapter 4, last week... James taught us an important pattern of behavior for followers of Jesus. This is a very important pattern of behavior or a pattern of living that a follower of Christ needs to check is active in their life. And it goes like this. Humble yourself before God. Humble yourself before God. Realize that God is God and you are not. God is God and I am not. My ways are not His ways. His ways are higher than my ways. And His ways are right all the time. Occasionally, I get it right, depending on if you ask my wife or not. Occasionally, I get it right. God gets it right all the time. And if I live life God's way, my life counts for something bigger than just my own self-satisfaction. But if I do life my way, eh, not so much. So he says, that first, you have to humble yourself. Understand that God is God and that you are not when you have gotten to that point of humility, then you need to submit to God's authority. Submit to God's authority. Since you know now that He is God and you are not, His ways are better than your ways, His ways are higher than your ways, His ways are always right, yours might sometimes be right, then submit to His authority and let Him lead you. Going back to beginning with the end in mind. Hello? Somebody want to guide when they drop you off in the woods with a compass and a Boy Scout handbook and a map? Here it is. If you will submit to His authority, you do that by asking the Holy Spirit to come and take residence in your life. And when the Holy Spirit comes and lives in you, He becomes your guide through the woods. All the dark, dank, dangerous places. He can take you right through them. He can take you around them. Don't promise that He's going to always avoid them, but He will get you through those trials of many kinds. It's amazing. You say so you humble yourself, then you submit yourself to God, and He says you need to repent. Now, repent is a churchy-sounding word, but repent is such a simple concept. Repent means this. I'm marching this way towards my sin. I realize that it is sin. I have conviction that comes from the Holy Spirit living in me. I see it for what it is, and I turn around, and I walk back in the other direction towards God. That's what repentance looks like. It's not confession. It's repentance. It's literally turning and walking away from the sin and walking back towards God. It's a 180 about face. It requires some action. That's what James is teaching us here. Be humbled, be submitted, and repent. Good stuff. Let's see what this half-brother of Jesus. Let's see what James has to say now in chapter 5. This is like the final chapter of what he has to say. It's like maybe the most important words. Usually when you, when you write or when you teach or speak, they tell you the most important point should go at the end. Leave them with the thing you want them to remember most. And so I assume then James probably knew that or was led by the Holy Spirit to do that. So let's check out James chapter 5 verses 1 to 6 titled, A Warning to Rich Oppressors. Sounds interesting. Now listen, you rich people. Weep and wail because of the misery that is coming on you. Your wealth has rotted and moths have eaten your clothes. Your gold and silver are corroded. Their corrosion will testify against you and eat your flesh like fire. Ouch. You have hoarded wealth in the last days. Look, The wages you failed to pay the workers who mowed your fields are crying out against you. The cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord Almighty. You have lived on earth in luxury and self-indulgence. You have fattened yourselves in the day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the innocent one who was not even opposing you. When I first read, this passage of Scripture, the first thought that came to me was this. That's not written to me. That's not written to me. It's written to rich oppressors. And, and I began to kick in my cultural thinking where I start thinking about what rich really is. And in my understanding, in my cultural training, rich is somebody who probably makes about ten dollars or $20,000 a year more than I do, which is real relative, isn't it? Because some of you make 10 or 20,000 dollars a year more than I do, and some of you make 10 or 20,000 dollars a year less than I do. So in your world, I would be rich, and in my world, those of you who make more than me, y'all are rich. But in the real world, in the global view, rich looks like this. Almost two-thirds of the Earth's population exists I won't even say lives exists on less than three dollars a day. American money. Three bucks. Two-thirds of the population of the world exists on $3 a day. Raise your hand if you make more than $3 a day. Or your spouse does. Yeah, some of you. I know how it works. Right? I, I'll, I'll be honest with you. I make more than $3 a day. Shh! Don't tell the church. They might think I'm overpaid. I make more than 3 bucks a day. I'm rich by worldly standards. I am wealthy, and so are you. If you drove a car here today, if you rode in a car today, if you're wearing a set of clothes that is more than your second option, you're rich. If you have a house, you're rich. A roof over your head that's not made of cardboard, you're rich. If you have a refrigerator, you're rich. If there's food in it, you're filthy, stinking rich. If you've got a pantry next to it with food in that, you're off the charts, baby. Okay? We're rich! Okay, Todd, but are we oppressors? Aha! I'm glad you asked. Are we oppressors? Think about what James wrote to us. I believe it was in chapter two when he taught us about the rich man who came into the temple, into the church and the people there gave him a a really good seat because he had a cool gold ring and some pimped out clothes. And so they brought him to the front, like introduced him to the pastor. Hey, I want you to meet my pastor. Pastor, you want to meet this guy? And then the poor man came in, the beggar came in and they sat him in the back like he was wearing a t-shirt and flip-flops to a fancy restaurant. They gave him the table in the corner back by the kitchen if they sat him at all, right? How do you react? How do you respond to those two different kinds of people? Think about it in modern terms. When you got the guy in the really cool, the businessman in the business suit, decked out, shiny shoes, power tie, Rolex watch, drives that European import. Now contrast that to how you would respond to the dirty beggar who meets you at the street corner at the stoplight with the cardboard sign with the big fat sharpie marker writing on it that says we'll work for food or I'm a veteran stranded here ran out of gas I mean I don't know they like pass the same sign around because they all say the same thing but whether they're scamming you or not scamming you how do you respond to that person because that person matters to God God loves that person just as much as he loves you I'm not saying throw caution to the wind and don't, you know, follow the checks in your spirit. There are weird people out there. I'm just saying, in your heart, how do you see those two people as differently? If you see them and would respond to them differently and would favor one, love one, be more inclined to spend time with one than the other, you might be a rich oppressor. Ouch. Now, interestingly, the Bible doesn't have anything to say negative about having wealth, about being rich. I mean, there's some challenges that come with it. There are challenges that come with having money, but there is no prohibition about being wealthy. In fact, in my understanding, everything that we have comes from God. Every penny, every nickel, every dime, every dollar that you and I have comes from God. He is the provider of everything. And if God has blessed you in a way that you are financially, physically, monetarily wealthy, amen, that's good. It comes with challenges, and if you're wealthy, you know that. It comes with challenges. There's bills to pay, people that want some of it, some of this, some of that, whatever. There's challenges with that. But God does not forbid us from being wealthy. God does not say that money and wealth is a sin. God says selfishness is a sin. He says that, that living on earth in luxury and self-indulgence, that is a problem for us. And James writes about that because I believe he saw that at work in the early church. And I believe that same thing is at work in the church today. Verse 7, moving on, verses 7 to 11 patience in suffering. Whoo, good stuff. Be patient then, brothers and sisters. James has shifted gears. He's moved from uh, addressing the oppressive rich people, the rich oppressors. Now he is addressing the Joe Blow, the Jane Blow, the everyday guys and gals. And he's saying, be patient then, brothers and sisters, until the Lord's coming. See how the farmer waits for the land to yield its valuable crop, patiently waiting for the autumn and spring rains. You too be patient and stand firm And mercy. James moves from addressing one group to addressing another. And what is the first thing that he teaches them? The first point is patience. He says, be patient. There's rich oppressors. Some of you are oppressed. Be patient. And this isn't just written to the oppressed. I just think it was the audience that needed to hear it the most at the time. Be patient. Persevere. God's up to something. Remember chapter 1? What did James teach us? What did James teach us about trials of many kinds? Consider it pure joy when you face trials of many kinds. Patience, perseverance under persecution is a tall order. But James teaches us to have pure joy and to be patient in persecution because it is worth it, because God is, as he says, compassionate and mercy. He pulls Job as the example. Job is an Old Testament character, and by character, I don't mean some literary device made up figment of the imagination. I mean a real guy who lived, and there's a book by his name in the Old Testament, and in this book, let me just give you the the Reader's Digest version. In this book, Satan goes to God and says, see that dude Job, he loves you, he worships you, he follows you, he's a righteous guy, but only because you're so good to him. Let me derail his life and let's see if he still calls on your name. Let's see if he still loves you. Let's see if he still worships you. Let's see. And God says, okay, you want to mess with my boy Job? I believe Job is faithful. Have at it. Give him your worst. And Satan does. He goes and he starts messing with Job. He takes away Job's wealth. Job was a wealthy man. He attacks Job's health. He takes away Job's children and his family. He basically destroys everything that we culturally would hold dear. Everything that we culturally would look at as a sign of success. Satan wipes it out. Job stays faithful to God. Job still worships God. I think Job probably asked himself some questions here and there. I think he might let his mind wander into those darker places. He might even say why on occasion in this process. But finally, Job's friends come to him and say, Job, dude, you got sin in your life. You're messed up. That's the only reason God would allow all this stuff to happen. You need to repent. (laughs) You you need to be humbled. You need to be uh, repentant. and, And you need to submit to God. Job says, no, 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 no. I've done that. I'm living the life I'm supposed to live. I don't know why all this stuff is happening, but I will not take my eyes off God. I will not stop worshiping. I will continue to bow my knees. I will continue to fall on my face before God. And eventually, Job gets the opportunity to question God himself. What's going on? Why? What's happening? And God reveals to Job some of the the cool characteristics of God. He, He reveals to Job some things about his sovereignty God's sovereignty. He reveals to Job, basically, that at all times in all things, every one of us must trust Him. We must trust Him. And if we will be patient and have perseverance when we come under persecution, if we will live with the joy of Jesus in our hearts in those trials and let God work out what He is working out, into to us, life gets really good. It gets really, really good. Remember what James said? Remember what James said? God is compassionate and mercy. And in the end, Job was restored. He was restored. Everything he had lost was returned to him. And Job learned a phenomenal, valuable, incredible lesson. Some of us might say the hard way, but he learned it. And he has become the poster child The example of having patience in persecution. His name went into the Scriptures. His story is told for all time. We're talking about him literally thousands of years after his death. Some of you are seeking significance in your life. (laughs) Is there anything more significant than a guy like Job? Having perseverance, having patience under persecution... And being an example to thousands, millions, hundreds of millions, perhaps billions of people throughout time. Just saying. Whew, I'm getting sweaty up here. This is good stuff. I'm getting hot. Chapter 5, verse 12. This is the verse out of left field. You've been reading Scripture, and you come to a passage, and you're like, why is that in there? Where did that come from? What is that about? I don't even understand how this fits in. Verse 12 is kind of like that. Check it out. James says, Above all, my brothers and sisters, do not swear, not by heaven or earth or by anything else. All you need to say is a simple yes or no. Yes or no. Otherwise, you will be condemned. Doesn't even fit the context of where. I don't understand. What is he? Why is this? Hmm. Let me read that again. Above all, my brothers and sisters, do not swear, not by heaven or by earth or by anything else. All you need to say is a simple yes or no, otherwise you'll be condemned. Huh. Well, James is writing to the church. He's writing to the already convinced. He's writing to me and you, the believers in Christ. If you are one of those, listen to what he's saying and think about the context of this book. Where does this fit in? It doesn't seem to fit, but it's here, so it must somehow. I think about how James has been writing to us for four chapters and and leading us and guiding us in how we're to live in response to the cross of Christ. And and he says here, don't swear. And by the way, the swearing he's talking about is not like swear words, cuss words, foul language, rough language. It's not that. He's saying don't swear like, I swear by my mother's grave. It's, 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 it's making these bold statements, these over-the-top statements of I whatever I'm saying is true or something bad is going to happen to this person or that person or I'm going to lose all my wealth or whatever. He just says, let your yes be your yes and your no be your no. What James is writing about here is, in fact, integrity. Now, James has written over the past four chapters a couple of different times about integrity He's written about it from the other end of the spectrum. He said, he's talked about being double-minded or living in duplicity, saying one thing and doing another, living one way in public and another way in private, speaking this way with this group of people and then running over here with your church friends and doing something completely different. He's talking about living a duplicitous life. And here James says, we can't do that. That is not how the church is to operate. We need to let our yes be our yes and our no be our no. We need to speak and live with integrity. Integrity being whole, one, not divided, not split. It's the same word, uh, root word that the word integer or whole number comes from. He's talking about being whole and not divided against yourself, not living a duplicitous life, being double-minded. You don't need to add anything if you're following Jesus. The fruit of Him, Jesus, in your life should be integrity. Check yourself. Are you living double-minded? Are you saying one thing in one place with one group of people, saying something else somewhere else? Are you living one way and talking another? Are you the same in public and in private? Verses 13 through 18. The prayer of faith, one of my favorite passages in all of Scripture. The prayer of faith, verse 13, is anyone among you in trouble? Let them pray. If anyone among you is in trouble, let them pray. Is anyone happy? Let them sing songs of praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let them call the elders of the church to pray over them and anoint them with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer offered in faith will make the sick person well. The Lord will raise them up, and if they have sinned, they will be forgiven. Therefore... Confess your sins to each other that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. The prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. I look at everything James wrote up to that point. The prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. And the question that jumps off the page to me is this. What? makes a person? What makes you or me righteous? I actually wrote that question in a Bible of mine, one of my study Bibles that I was using probably 15 years ago. When I encountered that passage, I wrote down, what makes me righteous? Because if the prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective, I want to make sure I'm righteous. And by the way, when I read that, I also noticed, it says the prayer of the righteous person is powerful and effective. You know what? It's not the oil. It says we should anoint people with oil when they're, you know, it's not the oil that's powerful and effective. It's not even the prayer itself, the words that are spoken that are powerful and effective. You know there's no hocus pocus, alakazam, magic prayer to solve the world's problems or somebody would have probably prayed it by now, right? It's not in the words, the words of the prayer don't make you righteous. The anointing oil, which by the way is just olive oil, there's no big mystery in that. It's just olive oil, man. You can go down to Kroger, buy you some olive oil and anoint. It's, I mean, it, So it's not the oil. It's not the, the words of the prayer that makes us, what is it that makes us right? It's your heart. In fact, more specifically, it's Jesus in your heart that makes you righteous. There is no other route to righteousness except Jesus. He says, I am the way, the truth, the life. No one gets to the Father except through me. No one, no way, no how, no words, no oil, no laying on of hands. None of those things are powerful and effective without the righteous person of Jesus in the heart of whoever is laying hands, anointing with oil, praying, words, any of that stuff. It's only Jesus that makes you or makes me righteous only Jesus there is no other route to righteousness verses 19 and 20 James's parting words in his final chapter my brothers and sisters if one of you should wander from the truth and someone should bring that person back Remember this, whoever turns a sinner from the error of their way will save them from death and cover a multitude of sins. We've talked about this word death many times. I'm going to talk about it again. This is not you're going to live forever uh, in your body death. It's not like saying, hey, you can become immortal. This is saying if you will help somebody come to the conclusion that they need to be humbled before God that they need to submit to his authority that they need to repent of their sin if you will help somebody come to that realization if you can lead them to those conclusions you will have been instrumental in saving them from eternal separation from God that is the death we're talking about it's a spiritual death we call it hell it's a lot simpler word we just say Your spirit is alive. It it lives inside of you, your soul, and it's going to live eternally. And it has one of two destinations, heaven and hell. Remember the paths, right? Wisdom of the world, wisdom of the Bible. You can choose one, begin with the end in mind. And if you can help somebody come to the conclusion to get off of the path of worldly wisdom and onto the path of biblical wisdom, then you can save them, literally, from eternal death and give them, by default, eternal life. That eternal life, as we've already discussed, comes only through Jesus. Jesus teaches us that we're to love others, right? The great commandment. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. Love God and love others. The great commission, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. He says to teach, to train, to baptize, to create Followers of Jesus by discipling them, teaching them, training them. James teaches that it's part of our call as followers of Jesus. It is part of our mission as the church, local and global, to live these things out. To let all of the things He has taught us so far, not just inform us, but transform us. And that the fruit of that transformation is that we become instruments of God in leading others to the same conclusions, the same path of biblical wisdom, of humbling ourselves, submitting ourselves, and repenting of our sin. And the fruit of this, he says, is heaven. It's eternal life with God. Jesus himself said in John 15:13 that a man has no no greater love than to lay down his life for his friends. See, it's a sacrificial thing that we're called to. This life that we're to live, this church that we are to be. Let's just take that out of there. Let's just take out to be. The church that we are. The man and the woman that you are. If you are a follower of Christ, is a sacrificial man, a sacrificial woman. It is a sacrificial church. We live sacrificial lives laying down ourselves for our friends, our neighbors, our community, our family, our co-workers, your co-workers, family, friends, neighbors. Sacrifice. We're to live We do live sacrificial lives. Sacrificial leadership, sacrificial love, sacrificial giving, sacrificial living. That is what we are called to do. Ladies and gentlemen, that is the mission of this church. And I will not come off of it. I will not be changed. I will not be diverted. It was given to me in my heart as I prayed earnestly and asked God, what do you want me to do with my life? You told me to plant this church. I've got this vision. What does it look like fleshed out? And he said, lead people to know me personally, to grow in their faith through relationships with others, and then to go and share my love with a world that is dying for it. We exist to know, to grow, and to go. To know Jesus personally, to grow in faith, and to go share that love. We do these things sacrificially. Sacrificially. And this morning when I think about great sacrifices, great sacrificers, I am reminded of the sacrifices that my own mother made in my life, and that very likely your mother made in yours. So as we celebrate the one who made the ultimate sacrifice, Jesus, as we seek to follow him, I want to also remind you that he tells us to honor our fathers and our mothers. And today is a day that yes, the world, the culture set it aside. It's not a Christian holiday, but you know what? It is a great wake up call in your life and mine, to reach out to our mothers, to thank them, to love them sacrificially for all of the sacrificial love they have poured into and continue to pour into your life and my life. One of the best things you can do to respond to this call to live a sacrificial life, one of the best gifts you can give your mom is if you're not a follower of Jesus today, you can question yourself. Ask yourselves Are His ways higher than my ways? Should I consider the possibility, maybe, that I need to humble myself before a holy God? Should I consider the possibility that I might need to submit myself to this holy God, to this path that leads to life? Do I have sin in my life that I should repent of, that I should turn away from and walk back towards God? If you found yourself answering yes to those questions, and you know you've never really been there with God before. You've never had that moment in your life where you asked Jesus to come in and become your guide, your savior. You've never submitted to This is an opportunity for you to do that. And what a gift you can give, whether your mom is a follower of Christ or not. If she's not, then you can begin to share his love with her and what he's done in your life with her and possibly see her make that same decision. If she is, she has been praying for you for a long, long time. And there would be no greater gift on Mother's Day than that gift. I'm going to pray. And as I pray, if you want to make that decision, I'm going to give you an opportunity to respond in prayer to God. You don't have to get up. You don't have to come to the front. You can sit in your seat. But you do need to truly in your heart, to the best of your ability, submit yourself to God. To be humbled before Him. To repent of your sins and allow Him to come in and not just inform, but Transform your life. Let's pray. My Lord and my God, what an amazing five weeks. What an incredible message James preaches. Father, I pray that I did it justice, trying to follow your promptings of your Spirit so that the men and the women in this room, God, could really receive not just the information but truly be prepared and receive the transformation of Jesus living in their hearts. God, I know some of us bowed the knee and prayed a prayer of confession, of of humility, of submission and repentance. Some days or weeks ago, some years ago, some can't even remember how long ago it was. God, through this Message, this series, I pray that you have awakened in them, as you have in me, some conviction of areas of their life, of their faith, of their walk where they need to turn back to you. Worldly wisdom has infiltrated their thinking and their hearts, and they've got burning words coming out of their mouths instead of building words. Or, God, they whine and cry in the midst of trials or they flee from You when things get tough. Whatever it is, Lord, I pray that You would move in their hearts and that they would be receptive to that still, small voice that is prompting them to not just be informed, but to be transformed. Because Your Spirit is in them, and they had the strength to turn away and walk away from that sin and walk back to You. God, for others this morning, they're hearing this message, and, and They're maybe asking themselves those questions. Am I greater than God or is God greater than me? Should I consider the possibility that I need to submit myself to His authority? God, if they're honest, they already know that they have sin in their lives. They, They mess up. They do things that are morally wrong. And they need to repent. Father, I pray now that you would move in their hearts and that they would respond to that movement, that prompting, by praying something like this. God, I do believe that I'm messed up. I'm a sinner. And I do believe that there is no way for me to be righteous except through your son Jesus who died on the cross for my sins. And God, to the best of my ability, I want to submit my life to you. I invite you to move in and live in my heart, to infiltrate my life, to be my guide in this wilderness, to save me from the death that I deserve, that eternal separation from You. Thank You, Jesus, for what You gave me on the cross. I receive that gift today. And if you prayed that this morning, I just ask that you would come and talk to me or come and talk to Jim or just let us know through email or one of our guest registry cards that you did that. Because we want to celebrate with you and we want to help put you on the right path, help guide you now that you've made that decision and have the ability to be transformed. We want to make sure that that transformation takes place. And all we want to do is be a help along the way. And so if you would let us know that, let Elevation Church know that, we can work with you and share with you your next steps in following Jesus. Father, this morning we pray for those who have made that decision. We pray for those who have conviction about changing something in their life. We pray they would have the the follow-through on that. And Lord, we lift up to you this morning our moms. You give us life eternal. They helped you give us life on this earth. And for that, we owe them a great debt of gratitude and much love. In Jesus' name, amen.